We're going to be <clears throat> continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. And today we're going to camp out for a while on 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. And then we're going to go from this passage into other passages where the Apostle Paul and others have addressed this issue of the relationship that we have now as Christians to God's law. The Apostle Peter, in writing concerning uh, the Apostle Paul, said that, that he had written some things hard to understand, and that some immature believers had twisted some of the things that Paul had said, uh, as they did the other scriptures. And in saying that, the Apostle Peter brought the writings of the Apostle Paul into the canon of scripture. His endorsement of Paul's writings allowed Paul's letters to be added to the church as holy scripture, separated from all other literature, to function as the word of God in our lives. And so we're going to be going on a kind of a grand tour of some of that, some of those passages that perhaps Peter had in mind when he said, Paul has written some things that are hard to understand. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. All things are lawful for me. But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your assistance in reading and understanding your word as always. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and minds to see the truths that were in the mind of these apostles when they wrote these things, and that we would have those, Lord, as our precious treasure and be able to be doers of your word and not hearers only. And we ask these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as we've seen in the past few weeks, the Christians in Corinth are quite a mess. And they're still a mess. As we continue in this passage, Paul is still addressing the issue that we see in 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 7 and 8, where he writes, Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, the glaring lack of love among these Christians in Corinth by suing one another in court, and even that before unbelievers, was a display of unrighteousness not unlike that of unbelievers. And Paul is addressing this very carefully here. So Paul reminds the Corinthian 
believers that practicing such unrighteousness is, is the very thing that is bringing the wrath of God upon unbelievers in this world and keeping them from inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, we saw that their unrighteous behavior does not necessarily mean that they are not saved, although it could be an evidence that they've not yet been born again, that they do not know Christ, that they're not in Christ, that they do not have the Spirit of God, and therefore he's not, they're not a member of, of the body of Christ. But because we see in other places that Christians are in a battle with their own fleshly desires, and we need to be honest with ourselves, as, as John and others encourage us to be honest with ourselves. We lose some battles. We sin. But we will not lose the war. We can lose some battles, but we will not lose the war because Jesus has given us the victory over what Paul calls this body of death. And we read that in Romans chapter 7 and verse 24 by way of reminding you of past messages here. Paul writes, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, I, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do, I don't want to do. Uh, and so he, he's just in a, you can just feel the tension as he's writing in Romans chapter 7. And he then bursts into this O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer to that question, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, I will be delivered from this body of death. That's what he's saying here. It's the Lordship of Jesus Christ that rescues us from this body of death. When we acknowledge him as Lord, when we follow him as Lord, when we walk in what Paul calls in Romans, both the first and the last chapters of Romans, the obedience of faith, we find the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the sinful desires of the flesh. <clears throat> and so then Paul writes, so then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God. There's no question in my mind that God's law is, is right and good. But with the, law, with the flesh, I'm going to be serving the law of sin. I'm going to be struggling against this evil desire. And he then concludes in eight, chapter 8 and verse 1, which is an unfortunate chapter break, by the way. I mean, he's still in the middle of a thought. And yet we tend to break that up in ways that are harmful to the meaning. He says, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now notice this last statement in verse 2 of chapter 8. For the law of the Spirit of Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. By walking according to the Spirit, Paul tells us, we are free 
from the condemnation that comes to those who try to justify themselves under God's law. That's the condemnation that we are freed from. We are no longer under the law, but we are under grace, as we're going to see. So God has made a way for sinners to be saved, saved from their sin, saved from the punishment of God for their sin. And we see this in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law. Notice that. Apart from the law has been made known. Verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So, let's unpack this. Any deviation from the glorious display of God's will is sin. Okay? God has established the creation, and everything in creation complies with his perfect will, except for those who have rebelled against God. Beginning with Satan, and the angels who followed Satan, and the humans who followed Satan in the Garden of Eden. And so, all of Adam's posterity, that's us. We are all born in sin. We are all guilty of our own personal sins. And every sin is a deviation from the perfect will of God, which is his glory. Now remember that glory is a display of who God is and what he is like. And when God chooses to reveal himself in any way, it is glorious, okay? So now, when you think of glory, think of a display. Think of it like an artist. If you were a painter and you painted a beautiful masterpiece and then some moron came along and decided to put a mustache on your Mona Lisa, That is a deviation from the intention of the artist. And it is corrupting the beauty, the balance, the composition of that work of art. And so think of God as being a great artist. And we were intended to play our part in his grand, glorious work of art but we have failed to do so. We have rebelled against his will for all kinds of foolish reasons. And so all have sinned and therefore fall short of the glory of God. That's what that means. For you to fail to play your part in his glorious display is to fall short, like an arrow that's aimed at a target. And it just doesn't make it. It misses the mark. It falls short. It hits the grass in front of the target. That is what we are. We are sinners who have sinned against the glory of God, and we fall short of the purpose for which we were created. 
Now, any artist, you know, has the, the right to throw a work of art away if it doesn't meet his standards. You know, if you're a potter and you're making a, a, a beautiful vase and you put that work of art into the kiln and you fire it up and then when you open it up, you let it cool down, you open it up. If that vase has slumped, is the word they use, if it's kind of collapsed inside the kiln, the potter doesn't take it out and say, oh, this is a pretty one, let's put it on the shelf. No, the potter throws it away. It doesn't live up to the standard of his skill as an artist. And God could have thrown us away, all of us. But in his grace and mercy, he has chosen to redeem us from this falling short of the glory of God. And because of that, because all have sinned, God is able to forgive anyone based on Christ's righteousness rather than their own. Now, this is a detail that sometimes we overlook. If anybody out there had ever been able to be justified by their, by their works, then we would all be required to be justified by our works. But because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, when the one man came along who did fulfill the perfect righteousness of God, and that is our Lord Jesus, rather than saying, because I've done it, now you're all condemned, he says, no, I will take my success in living up to the standard, the perfect standard of God's righteousness, and I will die, not for my own sins, because I have no sins to die for. I will die for the sins of others. And so that death of our Lord Jesus Christ is put into the accounting books of heaven, and it's there, and it's able to be transferred to any account in the book that has a debt toward God. And so Jesus died for us. He didn't die for himself. He died for us. And now his life, his perfect life and sacrifice can be applied to our account and we walk away forgiven, free, no longer an enemy of God, but rather an adopted child of God. And so that is what it means when Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So today when we sin, God as our Heavenly Father disciplines us as his beloved children without having to condemn us forever. Because of what Christ has done for us, God no longer deals with us as an angry, wrathful judge, but rather as a loving, disciplinarian father. And so he works in us to grow us up and to bring us into that place of maturity then we will spend all eternity together with him. Now the Apostle Paul speaks, uh, or the Apostle John rather, speaks clearly to this issue, and he uses a term here that I find very helpful in understanding what's going on. We read in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you think you have arrived and you have no sin, uh, you have deceived yourself. If we, however, if we confess our sins, acknowledge our sins, call them what God calls them, they're not mistakes, okay? They're not errors in judgment. They're not little white lies. If we call our sin what he calls it, that's what, he, what confession means. We call it what he calls it, then we have what he's provided for it. As long as you are referring to your sin as anything other than sin, then you can't apply what God has provided for it. But when you say, no, it was sin. I sinned. I was wrong. I deserve to be judged for this. Well, now the blood of Jesus Christ can forgive and cover that sin. He is faithful. Notice it says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, where does the word just come into the picture here? For God to refuse to forgive you when you confess your sins would be an injustice toward Christ because he paid for it. If God the Father refused to forgive you, it would be an injustice toward his Son because he's paid for that sin, and therefore God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, because he says you have sinned. He says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And John adds, and his word is not in us. And then in chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. You don't have to keep on sinning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can say no to sin. But John is very realistic here, and he continues, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus as our advocate is in the courtroom scene where God's justice is being administered. And when Jesus presents to the Father what he's done for us by dying in our place, God is able to forgive us and to find us not guilty and to send us on our way in freedom because our attorney, Jesus Christ, is also the one who's paid our debt. And so we have that conclusion. Now, since all have sinned, all can be offered the same mercy. And so John continues in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10, and here's the phrase I want you to notice. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest. That means made obvious. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now listen to that. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. So, what does it mean to practice righteousness? Or, for the other, on the other hand, to practice sin? Well, you know, we sometimes think that practice means you're good at it, but it doesn't mean you're good at it. It just means you're trying to become good at it. 
So if I'm playing basketball and I'm shooting hoops and I notice the kids here, you know, after the services, they're, they're playing with the basketball, and you can be shooting at that basket over there and never make a shot, and yet we can still tell that you're practicing basketball. There's no doubt about what you're practicing. You're trying to get better and better at getting that ball to go through that hoop. And so when you're practicing righteousness, you may never make a shot, but you're still practicing. And you're growing up, and you're getting better, and you're trying to get better. But sometimes people are not practicing righteousness. They're practicing unrighteousness. They're trying to get better and better at doing what's wrong. They're trying to improve upon getting away with things. You know, like a, like a kid who's hiding things from his parents. You know, he's got something he shouldn't have hidden in the bedroom. You're practicing unrighteousness when you do that. But when you go to your parents and you say, this is wrong, I shouldn't have this, I want to throw this away, and I want you to know that I struggle with this, now you're practicing righteousness. And even though you may still miss a few shots, maybe you miss a lot of shots, maybe you miss all shots, but you're practicing righteousness. You're, you're attempting to improve in your ability to do what's right. And that's what John is saying here. And the thing that we should be practicing especially is our expressions of love toward one another. John sees this, as all the other apostles do as well, that love of one's neighbor, love of one's brother, is the fulfillment of the purposes of God's law. So those who do not practice righteousness are not yet saved. And as such, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God in any sense of that word, or that phrase. So this brings us to today's passage. How was that for an introduction? Okay. So here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul is careful not to pull the Corinthian churches back under the law of sin and death while he's still pushing back against their various kinds of unrighteous behavior. He wants them to stop doing things that are like the world, but he doesn't want to get them to stop by seeing it as some law that they have to keep in order to stay in God's favor. He's very careful about this. Remember, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee before he came to Christ. He knows all about the law and the keeping of the law. And I had so many passages I could go to. Philippians, the whole book of Philippians could be brought to bear on this point. Not having a righteousness of my own, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Now, Paul is careful not to pull these Corinthians back under the law and end up with a bunch of little Pharisees running around trying to justify themselves by keeping the law. The issue here is no longer a matter of keeping God's law, but rather of using liberty from that law as one should. So Paul is not saying, shame on you for not keeping the law. 
He's saying, shame on you for not walking in the Spirit. Shame on you for not walking in the righteousness that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit and desiring what God desires and doing what is pleasing to your Heavenly Father. The shame is not for not keeping the law, but rather for not walking in the Spirit. And that's, what the, that's the point we're going to try to nail here in this message today. So our liberty under the Lordship of Christ has put an end to the law for righteousness' sake. We no longer are attempting to keep the law in order to be justified before God. But it is not the end of the law for goodness sake. I don't know if your mom used to say, well, for goodness sake, what are you doing? Well, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that the law still has a function in our lives, but it's not as a means to justify us before God. It informs us, it teaches us about God and what God is like and what God is pleased with and not pleased with. It teaches us about righteousness, but it is not there to be kept like little Pharisees trying to justify ourselves because that will lead to condemnation. But instead, we allow the law to inform us as to what it looks like to walk in the Spirit and to be able to be free in Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul writes, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Paul is using a play on words here. The law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless. Now, Paul loves to play with these terms. And this passage is, is so important that it requires some context. So let's take a look at this statement of 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8 in context. What does it mean that we must use the law lawfully? Well, here we go. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. He's talking about here the Judaizers, the Jewish Christians who want all Christians to come under the law of Moses. They want all Christians to be circumcised and to keep the entire law. And Paul pushes back against that very, very hard. Now here we go, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So he's saying, if I forgot anything, you can figure it out. The law is not made for a righteous person. It is made for the lawless. 
When you see someone walking down the street on the sidewalk, and they're staying on the sidewalk, you don't need to run up to them and say, don't jaywalk! It's against the law! You don't need to announce that to somebody who's not jaywalking. Now, if this person starts to turn into the center of the block and walk into four lanes of traffic, and yeah, you say, hey, there's a law against jaywalking, but the law is not for a non-jaywalker. Okay? The law is for the jaywalker. So it's when we are veering into these sins that the law shouts to us, don't do that. And that's helpful. Okay? That's helpful. Because we know that if something was against God's law in the Old Testament, it's probably still not good in the New Testament. And that's what Paul's wanting us to see. By walking in the Spirit rather than the letter, we are able to enjoy the liberty that we have in Christ. And there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who walk not according to the law, but according to the Spirit. Do you see where we're going here? Paul hammers away on this issue because it is a devastating heresy when people try to go back under the law and justify themselves before God by their own obedience. And so, he says, according to the glorious gospel and blessed God who, who was committed, uh, which was committed to my trust. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So you can see how this list echoes the other lists, doesn't it, that we've seen when Paul says, don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists all these things and says, see that? That's why God's judgment and wrath is coming upon the world. Don't, don't act like that. Don't do that. But you need to use the law lawfully. Use it for the purpose that God intends, to inform and instruct rather than to condemn so the law is intended to suppress all of this unrighteous behavior, but it cannot justify us before God. It cannot save us. It can only inform us as to how badly we need to be saved. Now, the law, Paul tells us, is a tutor to bring us to Christ. Now, for the children that might be listening, we're not talking about a little horn. It's not that kind of a tutor, okay? Instead, this is a tutor like a teacher. A tutor is somebody that you have who helps you understand your, your schoolwork and your subject. So, what does Paul say? Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Paul's dealing with the Galatians in terms of their relationship to God and its Old Testament promises. So he's saying, now, does this mean, since we're no longer under the law, that we no longer get to participate in the promises that God has made? And he says, no. He says, certainly not. For if there had been a law given by which, uh, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Remember I said, if anyone had ever been able to keep the law perfectly, we would all have to keep the law perfectly. 
But when Jesus actually did so, he didn't use that as a basis for condemning all of us, but rather as an opportunity to die for all of us. Isn't that beautiful? He could have used his righteousness as a means of condemning the entire human race for not living up to the just demands of God's law. But instead, he gave his life for us. Notice we read, but the scripture has confined all under sin. That's an echo of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So we all have the opportunity to believe and to receive his forgiveness. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And then he says, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified, not by the law, but by faith. So Paul is saying here that God's law was given to us in order to make us aware of how badly we need a Savior. And those Old Testament Jewish believers who depended not on their ability to keep the law, but rather depended upon the sacrificial system that routinely paid for those sins year by year, looking toward, ultimately, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would take away the sins of the world. So, the law is a tutor to teach us how badly we need a Savior and to bring us to Christ so that we can be saved not by keeping the law, but by faith in the one who died in our place. And Paul continues, but after faith has come, and listen to this closely. After faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's like you've, you're now in Christ. He has become your, your shield. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now Paul is not negating all of these relationships within society. There's still male and female. There's still the employer and the employee, the master and the slave. There is still Jew and Greek. But in Christ, we've all come by the same means to this salvation, which is by faith alone. And so in Christ, we are all one. And Paul deals with this in much more detail uh, in Ephesians, where he talks about he has taken down the wall of partition between the Jew and the, and the Gentile, so that now there's just one one man, and that is above the standards of the law and set free from the condemnation of the law 
And that is the new man, the new creation that we have become in Christ Jesus. Now, let's take a look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, that means you're part of the promise, and heirs according to the promise. And now we come back to the, is the law then against the promises of God? The answer is certainly not. By this means, you have entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You are now Abraham's seed, and therefore you can lay claim to those very promises that were given to Abraham. Okay. So having come to Christ, we are no longer under the law. We are no longer in need of the tutor in the way that we were before. You know, Paul comes back to this issue again and again. And so we see, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is way on into the book. In verse 23, Paul writes, all things are lawful for me, again, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are, are going to edify, not all things edify, build up, in other words. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Now, some scholars have tried to uh, place this statement, all things are lawful for me, as though it's just some kind of slogan that the Corinthians came up with, and that it's uh, something Paul doesn't like. But if he didn't like it, he could be much more clear about it than he is. He's saying this statement is true. But we need to be careful because just because something is not against the law doesn't make it right, doesn't make it wise. Okay? God has a purpose in our lives. And this liberty that we have in Christ by not being under the law anymore does not mean that we can just do anything our carnal flesh wants to do because those things... It's not an issue of it being against the law anymore. It's an issue of it no longer being helpful. It's no longer going to be um, useful in fulfilling God's purposes in our lives or in the lives of others. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, we see the context for this repeat of the statement, all things are lawful for me. He says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just, he says, as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So what's going on here? There was a controversy over whether or not Christians could eat meat that had been offered in the temple because behind every temple there was a meat market. And so after those cattle and, and sheep and other animals were offered to false gods and sacrificed, what do you do with all that meat? Well, they used it to raise funds to support the temple. And they sold it out the back door in the meat market. And it would be probably the, the best quality and the lowest prices in town. 
So here's a Christian. He's on a limited budget, and he can get a really nice steak over there behind that pagan temple. And now the question is, is it against the law for me to eat this? And so Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And what should be helping us decide what we can and cannot do is let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So he's saying, don't offend others by eating and drinking things that are going to cause them to stumble. So we're free to live for the glory of God by loving one another. We are free to bring unbelievers to salvation. As Paul says, he's become all things to all men in, the, in order that he might by all means win some. So there are, are times when you don't hang on to your Jewishness in order to be able to reach the Gentile. And there are times when you do hold on to your Jewishness in order to reach the Jews. And so Paul is not letting these cultural things keep him from reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they're not sinful things. Now he deals with this in more detail later. Now just as all things are lawful for me, all foods are also pure. And none of these foods are to be considered unclean anymore. So let's take a look. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 19, Jesus is talking about it's not what goes out of a man or uh, into the man that defiles him, but rather it's what comes out of the man that defiles him. His murderous attitudes and his, his, his uh, foul language and all these things, that defiles the man. He says, but what goes into him, he says, it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And then parenthetically, Mark has here, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, why would that be important? If you were a Jewish apostle and you were trying to maintain a kosher diet, it would be severely limiting, okay? And so Jesus, in this statement, has pronounced all foods clean. So now when the Great Commission is, is issued, the disciples, the apostles are free to go all over the world and eat whatever is set before you and just be thankful for it and not to be concerned about it, whether it's kosher or not. Now, when you're back in, in, in Jerusalem or back in your hometown, you can eat kosher. You can be as kosher as you want, not for, for righteousness sake, not for justification, but just because you like that food. That's the food you grew up with. But if you're a missionary and you're going out into the jungles and they serve grubs, thank God for the grubs and, uh, and chow down. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the food that your hosts are serving to you. And many missionaries have had that, that adventure. Now, let's look at Romans chapter 14 and verse 20 in regard to this. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And by that he means by eating whatever you like. All things indeed are pure. Like Jesus said, they're, they're, they're no longer unclean. All things are 
pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. And the word offense here is, a, is the idea of eating while knowingly offending others. If you're in a Jewish home and you pull out a package of bacon that you brought along because you knew they wouldn't serve you bacon, what you're doing is you're, you're doing something that's offensive to your hosts. Paul is saying don't use your liberty in Christ to do things that are offensive to others. It is neither it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Now here's an amazing question. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. That's another way of saying eat your bacon at home. Right? Don't take your bacon to your Jewish neighbor's house because that would be an evil offense toward your neighbor. And then he says, happy is he who is not condemned, who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Go enjoy your bacon, you know, thank God for your bacon, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Well, there's two ways to see this in this context. One, if you're not really sure you should be eating bacon, don't eat bacon. But it also could be understood as he who doubts that what he's doing is not going to be offensive to his neighbor is condemned if he eats. If you're, if you're saying, I don't think my Jewish neighbor will mind, don't go there. <laughs> okay, don't do that. If you're not sure that your neighbor is not going to be offended, then don't take chances with your neighbor's eternal soul. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Now that statement can be applied in general across the board. Everything we do should be done by faith. But in the context here, the issue is, are you doing what you're doing in a way that you are sure it's an expression of love? That you're not doing something offensive toward your neighbor who may have a sensitive conscience in regard to whether it's eat meat, eat meat that's been offered to idols, or wine that's been offered to idols, or whether it's just a matter that it's not kosher in the home of a Jewish household. Whatever the case may be, you are not under the law. You are under grace. But remember that just because it's not against the law doesn't make it right, doesn't make it wise, doesn't make it helpful. So, Our liberty is freedom from bondage to the law as a means of righteousness. We have to keep that constantly in view. And so Paul, in his, book to, his letter to the Galatians, writes, and this occurred because of false brethren, that's the Judaizers, secretly brought in, who came by, in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, that is, bring us under the law of Moses, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. You see how important this is to Paul. Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again 
in a yoke of bondage, which would mean the Jewish law in this context. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith, working through love, avails everything. This is a, in the, in the Greek, is a form of grammar in which the sentence is completed by the opposite of where it started. It's called an ellipsis in the grammar. And so it would be for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. That's the word, avails anything. But faith working through love avails everything. And that's the point that Paul wants us to come away with. Again, we are free to love and to build one another up in Christ. And even though we are free from the law, our liberty is never to be used selfishly or in a self-serving way, in a way that is disregarding the interests of others. Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an occasion for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And he may have the, the Corinthians in mind as he writes this by suing one another in court. Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Now notice this next statement. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wished. Do you hear Romans chapter 7 in that? I, 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 I want to do this, but I don't. I, I don't want to do that, but I do. When the spirit and the flesh are warring against one another, you never entirely satisfy either. And therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. As you walk according to the Spirit, as you grow in grace, as you become more and more mature in Christ, but even as you become more mature in Christ, you become more and more aware of how far you still have left to go. That's why Paul could write, I am the chief of sinners. God has been so gracious to me. He, the more he walks in the Lord, the more he's aware of how many ways he offends as elsewhere, Paul fights to keep Christians from slipping back under the law by exhorting us to instead be led by the Spirit. And so our liberty is never to be used to indulge ourselves in unrighteousness. Galatians 5.19, very famous passage. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are, here we go again, Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revilers, and the like, in case I've missed anything, and the like, of which, you, um, which I tell you beforehand, or told you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, 
Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see how consistent this is? Now, Galatians 5.22, another continuation of a very famous passage, but I want you to notice a detail in this passage you might not have noticed before. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. In the Greek, this could be translated, in regard to these, there is no law. We don't do these things in order to keep a law. We do these things because we are walking in the Spirit. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's why we're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is the gospel alternative to obeying the law. Now I'm going to share one last passage here because I think it illustrates the point and then we're going to close. Paul's battle with the Judaizers over the abolishment of the law as a means of achieving righteousness before God was so central to the gospel that he was even willing to call out the Apostle Peter on this issue. Now, I don't know about you, but when Jesus says, Peter, you're a little stone, but on this rock of revelation of who I am, I will build my church, Peter is the man. I mean, he is, there's no question as who the lead apostle is among the the 11, uh, right? And then you have Matthias added, so now there's 12. But look what happened. Back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, that would be in Jerusalem, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. This is the Jewish community. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all. Now what Paul's going to say next to the Apostle Peter marks one of the most courageous moments in all of church history. I wonder what would have happened if Paul had not stood up and said what he had to say on this important day. If you, Peter, being a Jew, live in a manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, remember, Peter's not keeping the whole law, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature, that is by birth, and not sinners of the Gentiles. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we 
who have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ, therefore, a minister of sin? Is he encouraging sin? Certainly not. For if I build up again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And we often quote verse 20 entirely out of context. Uh, To live is Christ, you know, right? But it's all being spoken to the Apostle Peter as a rebuke for fudging on this issue of whether or not we are under the law or not. And Paul is saying we are not under the law, so don't suddenly change your behavior because a bunch of Jewish bigwigs come to town. You need to be just as comfortable with your Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ as you were before these Judaizers arrived. Now, I'm not saying that every Judaizer was lost. I'm saying that they were confused about how the law relates to the Christian. And Paul spent his life fighting against this issue of bringing Christians under the law, requiring circumcision, and so on. And Paul lost this battle at the end of his life. I think that we can see that in his letter to Timothy, the second letter to Timothy, he writes, I charge you therefore, Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, resort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now what Paul writes next are some of the saddest words ever written in history. Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, 
and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. If these men had left on good terms, I don't think Paul would have lumped them in with Demas, who has forsaken him. But he then continues, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. He was reconciled to John Mark, for he is useful to me in the ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I believe in these last words of the Apostle Paul, we can see that he was losing the argument. The people were walking away from his zeal for our liberty in Christ, that we are not under the law, and they were succumbing to the temptation of going back into a, a Jewish version of Christianity that did not make this distinction, that did not keep this clearly drawn. And, it, and this is all written probably about six years before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. When this temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, suddenly the Jews had no more place to sacrifice. And the whole Jewish idea of being a Christian and a Jew had to be readjusted. And all of a sudden, I believe the apostles, Paul's writings were being gathered up and people were, were texting Timothy. <laughs> Timothy, do you have some of those letters that Paul wrote? We, we, we remember what he said, and it's starting to look like he was right. And so we have our New Testament with all the letters of Paul and all this emphasis on keeping it clear that you are no longer under the law. The law is a tutor to bring you to Christ. Once you come to Christ, you no longer need a tutor but you do need the goodness of the law to help you understand what is good, what is right, what is pleasing to God, and then to do those things in the power of the Holy Spirit, not as a means of justifying yourself before God, but as a means of showing your love for your Heavenly Father and for one another in Christ. We have liberty in Christ. But it's not a liberty to serve ourselves. It's a liberty to love and serve one another. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your riches of your word. We thank you for opening our eyes this morning. And I pray that this 
teaching uh, would land on good soil and take root, and that all of us in this congregation and beyond would be so fruitful as we walk in the Spirit, and that we would not be taken in to another yoke of bondage ever again. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.